Welcome to Oncofarm. I'm your host, John Bazaar. I am uh, an associate professor at the Bill Gatton College of Pharmacy at East Tennessee State University, who is uh, the supporter, uh, supporting sponsors, not the right word, but they help us out uh, here on the Oncofarm podcast. Uh, thanks for joining us. Today, we're going to get back to uh, you know one of my favorite types of podcasts we do, and that's the our, our, our foundations in oncology pharmacy. We're talking about the bread and butter drugs, and, and today we're going to talk about cyclophosphamide. And this was a winner uh, in the election day um, Twitter poll I did. It was a tie, uh, so we'll make sure we do uh, the rise and fall of ESAs, probably do a full Fox one too, hopefully by the end of this year, although we tend to see a lot of new drug approvals at the end of the, end of the calendar year. Uh, so cyclophosphamide, we'll just get right into this. Uh, aliases, cytoxin brand name. Really not a whole lot. If you go back in the early, early literature, you'll see uh, B518-ASTA, but it's cyclophosphamide and, uh, and cytoxin. Um, so this drug um, goes back goes back a ways. Uh, it was FDA approved in 1959. Um, uh, at the time that this drug was approved, it was actually approved on November 16th, uh, 1959, which, look at my phone, is tomorrow is going to be the 59-year anniversary of this drug that was approved in 1959. Um, the top movie of the time, which was actually released like two days later, was Ben-Hur, written by, um, I guess I can do this, fellow Indiana native, uh, General Lou Wallace. Uh, great film. Uh, I haven't read the book, but I'm sure the book is good too. Uh, the top song during this time was Mr. Blue by the Fleetwoods. Um, and it was actually number one sandwiched by Mac the Knife by Bobby Darren, which had been number one by Billboard several weeks before and then several weeks after. But for the week this drug was approved, Mr. Blue by the Fleetwoods. A song I'd never heard of, gave it a spin, uh, listened to it, and it sounds, it's the most 1959 song uh, from what I think of 1959 to be. Anyway, back to uh, the history of cyclophosphamide. So uh, back in the 30s, um, there was a scientist named Siegel who had identified that phosphoamidase enzymes were in greater concentration in tumor cells. And they had the idea, let's try and engineer or develop a drug that will um, basically be activated by this phosphoamidase enzyme in tumor cells. Uh, this is the 1930s. This sounds exactly like what we have now done as, uh, as a community with capecitabine, for example. Um, so anyway, this was this was toyed around with developed, and it wasn't until um, you know 1959 uh, that the drug actually entered clinical trials. 1958 is the first big publication that you see in the journal Nature, uh, showing that it has um, cytotoxic activity in in rat tumors. Enters clinical trials uh, by the 59s, at least those are published, and it's approved uh, uh, in November of 1959. And it wasn't until the 1960s that we actually, not we, I mean, as an oncology committee figured out that it wasn't the tumors that were bioactivating this drug, but it's the liver that's doing this. So, you know, the, the idea, you know, they were wrong, but in a good way because the drug's pretty effective. So if I were to ask you this question, how does cyclophosphamide work? Your answer really should be, it doesn't work because it's a prodrug. So cyclophosphamide requires bioactivation delivered by several cytochrome P450 enzymes like 2B6, for example. Um, so it's hydroxylated to 4-hydroxycyclophosphamide, and again, hydroxylation is adding an OH, uh, which is in equilibrium with aldophosphamide, which is then converted to phosphoramide mustard, and that's 
the chemotherapy part of it. That's what works. That, that works as a bifunctional alkylating agent, so it can actually covalently bind to two parts of DNA, and that's going to stop DNA replication. Um, it's not a cell cycle specific agent, um, so it kind of works right any time of the cell cycle. But again, as with most traditional chemotherapy, is more active and preferentially targets rapidly dividing cells, just like most chemotherapy. Um, to back up a little bit, that aldophosphamide um, metabolite that's converted to the active phosphoramide metabolite, when, when aldophosphamide turns into phospho, the phosphoramide mustard, it also produces acrolein, which is a toxic metabolite that you got to know when you talk about cyclophosphamide, and we'll talk more about that later. So this drug is used, oh my gosh, this is, I'm trying to think, of, this is like the, the piptazo of, of chemotherapy. I mean, it's hard to come across a cancer patient that's not on cyclophosphamide. It's a bit of an exaggeration, but, you know, it's used a lot. Uh, it's available both PO and IV. As far as solid tumors, um, the most common malignancy where you see this is breast cancer in the AC regimen, where A is an anthracycline and, and the C is cyclophosphamide. That dose is 600 milligrams per meter squared. It's also used in UN sarcomas and back in the old days, small cell lung cancer, the old cave regimen, the C in that was cyclophosphamide. By the way, if you're a student of mine listening to this, please tune out for about 10 seconds. If you are a fellow oncology educator, if you're writing exam questions, and the correct answer is going to be cyclophosphamide or cytarabine or cetuximab. Just make all your distractors see. It confuses the heck out of students because oncology is like a different language. All right, students, welcome back. Uh, so besides solid tumors, it's also used in a lot of, in several malignant hematologic conditions, so leukemias uh, and lymphomas. Uh, most notably, it's the C in CHOP and RCHOP. That dose is 750 milligrams per meter squared. And again, these are one-time doses on day one every 21 days. Um, so your standard dose of cyclophosphamide is somewhere between 600 and 750 milligrams. That's what I would think of kind of a standard dose. There are some regimens where it's 500 milligrams per meter squared. So maybe think of 600 as your standard dose, 600 milligrams per meter squared. Uh, it's used in ALL and the hyper-CVAD regimen, Burkitt's lymphoma in the hyper-CVAD regimen, CLL and FCR, um, Hodgkin's lymphoma uh, in BIACOP. Uh, and before MOP, there was COP, which was cyclophosphamide, uh, has activity in myeloma. Um, uh, it's used in bone marrow transplant conditioning regimens, and we're talking, again, standard dose, 650 milligrams per meter squared. Um, for BMT, you're talking 50 to 100 milligrams per kilogram, different units, much higher doses. Um, and at those very high doses, you see a different toxicity profile, notably cardiotoxicity. Cyclophosphamide also has, in addition to its myelosuppressive activity, it also has immunosuppressive activity, which is one of the reasons it's used as a conditioning agent prior to, to stem cell transplant, because not only will it ablate or wipe out the bone marrow, if it's a fully mild blade of conditioning regimen, but also is going to impair the activity of the circulating T cells, and that's going to help prevent graft-versus-host disease in the acute phase. So because of that immunosuppressant activity, it's used for things like lupus nephritis, uh, ITP or immune thrombocytopenia purpura, and again, we talked a little bit about this uh, and the nuance behind some of the data behind when to give the flu vaccine and patient on chemo, which chemo regimen. <clears throat> uh, and of course, there are going to be other diseases I, I haven't mentioned because cyclophosphamide is pretty broad spectrum with regards to its anti-neoplastic activity. Um, you know, when I talk to, to students, whether it's a pharmacy students or, or nurses or, uh, or you know, physician assistant students, 
uh, you know, the toxicities are the really important things to know with chemotherapy. Um, I'm going to back one second up before we get into toxicity because I forgot to mention this. I'm not involved day-to-day in the distribution production of, of chemotherapy, but during my residency when I was staffing, I always used to hate making cyclophosphamide because it took forever to go into solution. So you'd be making it and you just swirl, set it down, swirl again. It take it takes some time. So just if you're a physician listening to this and you're wondering, or a nurse wondering, how come it takes so long to get the chemo sometimes? Well, sometimes it takes a while to get these things to go into solution after reconstitution, okay? Give us a break there in the pharmacy. Okay, moving on to the toxicities. Obviously, myelosuppression, this tends to be uh, leukopenia with a nadir that's somewhat earlier than a lot of chemotherapy. We tend to think of most chemotherapy has been given one big dose that you can safely repeat <clears throat> in 21 days. So usually the nadir is around day 10 to 14. With cyclophosphamide, it's around day 7 to 12. A little bit of an earlier nadir. And of course, you can see alopecia, mucositis. As far as nausea and vomit, it is moderately emetogenic. Um, at normal doses. It's highly metagenic at, at you know, the bone marrow transplant doses. Uh, and it does cause hemorrhagic cystitis at, uh, potentially. Now, uh, other toxicities include SIADH, which I wonder how much of that is the drug. You also see SIADH as a side effect with vincristine, and I wonder if that's from the old cave regimen and small cell lung cancer, because you know, is it the drug or the disease sort of question. Uh, you can see second to, secondary hematologic toxicities with uh, long-term survivors. And here's a unique side effect that's not reported probably or described in a lot of your drug information databases, but it's one of those very oncology-specific things that gets kind of passed down from clinician to clinician. I didn't learn about it in training. I learned about it um, actually observing nurses do chemotherapy education. And that is nasal congestion that can happen when the drug is administered too fast. So maybe a standard infusion time for cyclophosphamide is one hour. Given the drug faster than that seems to be associated, uh, at least anecdotally, with nasal congestion and sinus congestion. And there, there are some, several case reports about this, uh, even uh, that have the, the term wasabi nose in the title, uh, which is always fun to come across something like that. Um, so, you know, just to summarize the toxicities, you've got the hallmark toxicities of, of traditional chemotherapy, myelosuppression, alopecia, mucositis, um, nausea, vomiting. The unique toxicity here is hemorrhagic cystitis, and that's caused by the toxic metabolite acrolein. So acrolein attacks the bladder wall and causes that, that bloody damage. Um, now, in most patients at standard doses, so they say that 600 to 750 milligrams per meter squared dose one time, you don't need to, to do anything special other than uh, encourage patients to vigorously hydrate, hydrate for two to three days after a dose, and that's two liters a day, um, which uh, if you're really healthy, you're doing anyway. If you're not, you need to up your, your fluid intake while you're getting cyclophosphamide. Um, there are a couple situations, though, where you would want to use the drug Mesna. Uh, this is a, this is a terrifying question. If you were a pharmacy oncology resident like I was, when someone says, when a transplant physician says, "What's Mesna stand for?" You're like, oh, the S is for sulfur, I think. You know, so uh, just in case you're in that position, it's sodium two mercaptoethane sulfonate. It is a sulfuric compound, so uh, we tend to give it IV. Uh, there is a PO formulation, and uh, the bioavailability is about 50%. So the ratio, the conversion from IV to PO is one to two. So if you were to give it orally, you'd have to give it double the dose. Because of that sulfuric nature, it does um, have that sulfur smell like egg water uh, in the well water where I grew up, uh, unfortunately. A couple situations where you would use Mesna. 
So potentially bone marrow transplant, condition regimens, uh, the hyper-CVAD regimen uh, for ALL or Burkitt lymphoma, uh, the hyper stands for hyperfractionated cyclophosphamide. So the dosing there is 300 milligrams per meter squared of cyclophosphamide twice daily for three days. You end up with a total dose of 1.8 grams per meter squared. So, you know, quite a bit of a, you know, three times the normal dose in a breast cancer patient receiving AC. So because of the higher dose, uh, mesna is given during that hyper-CVAD regimen. Um, the other times I consider this is patients receiving, say, a, a healthy dose of cyclophosphamide who also have renal dysfunction. The theory being that the acrolyne that's being uh, created from the cyclophosphamide is just going to sit in the bladder because of poor renal function. It's not going to be eliminated. Therefore, there's more time that acrolyne can come into contact with the bladder wall. And those are times I would I would give a dose of mesna. And usually I would just do a one-to-one, -one, you know, so if you're given, say, 600 milligrams of cyclophosphamide, I, I, I say 600 milligrams of mesna. That is completely opinion and not evidence-based, though. I will, I will admit to that. Now, I haven't talked about iphosphamide, uh, which is probably a, a, a different podcast, but it does warrant discussion here because, well, they sound alike. Um, they're on the same slide and on the same page in the textbooks and in presentations. So uh, it's worth talking about because if there's one big difference to know, it's that with cyclophosphamide, you don't have to give mesna to everybody, whereas with iphosphamide, you always give mesna to everybody. And since the drugs work the same way, they sound the same, they look the same, the natural question for the inquisitive learner is, why don't we have to give mesna to everyone receiving cyclophosphamide? And the answer is kind of twofold. One is that it takes a lot longer for iphosphamide to be, become bioactivated. So it's got a slower hydroxylation process. And if you look at the doses, so we talked about the standard dose. I haven't, I don't harp on doses a whole lot in these podcasts, but I have with regards to cyclophosphamide. Normal dose of cyclophosphamide, 600, 750 milligrams per meter squared. Normal dose of iphosphamide, 1.5 to 2 to 2 grams per meter squared, and usually given in three to four doses. So a standard regimen, including cyclophosphamide, a patient will receive, say, 750 milligrams per meter squared. Uh, per regimen, whereas with iphosphamide, they might receive eight grams per meter squared. Uh, so in general, you need about four times as much iphosphamide to have the same antineoplastic activity. So what that means, very likely, is you get a whole lot more acrylamine produced for every dose of iphosphamide compared to cyclophosphamide, which is one of the reasons that you're more likely to see hemorrhagic cystitis with iphosphamide compared to cyclophosphamide. Uh, so with IFOS, you always give mesna. Uh, there are actually chemoprotectant guidelines where the dosing is there. In general, it's either a one-to-one. -one, you know, for every one gram per meter squared of IFOS, you give one gram per meter squared of mesna, uh, or you give 20%. So let's say you're giving one gram of IFOS, you would give 200 uh, milligrams, if my math is right there, of mesna in three different doses. Uh, so at hour zero, hour four, and hour eight. So before the iphosphamide is given, and then four hours later, and then four hours after that. So you always have some mesna in the bladder when the acrolein is produced. Um, you don't typically uh, need to monitor for hemorrhagic cystitis. You know, if you did a UA, you might see some microscopic blood. Uh, but with cyclophosphamide, again, as long as patients are able to maintain that vigorous hydration, uh, it's, not, it's not an issue. Um, Dose-reducing cyclophosphamide for hepatic and renal dysfunction um, 
is, is, is troublesome because there's not great evidence, as in most cases for these patients, on what to do. Um, so again, you can look in your drug information references and they'll talk, there'll be recommendations to do a dose reduction for hepatic dysfunction, which might seem a little bit counterintuitive because it has to be activated in the liver. So if the liver's not working and you do, you're not going to get as much of the active drug produced, and then if you reduce the dose, um, are you even making the drug less effective? Uh, so ideally, if you could, you would avoid using it in patients with hepatic dysfunction. Um, you will see recommended dose reductions of, say, 25% for people on dialysis is one that I've seen for patients uh, with, you know, with cyclophosphamide. Um, you know, the drug is all metabolized hepatically. Uh, the acrolein is cleared renally, um, so it, it really becomes a risk-benefit analysis. And again, those are patients where if you're going to give a dose, where sometimes I consider recommending mesna, depending on the risk-benefit, the risk being how worried are you about hemorrhagic cystitis, the benefit what are we going to gain with this dose of cyclophosphamide? Is this a curative or palliative case? Uh, how responsive is the, the disease to, to cyclophosphamide and the other drugs involved in the chemo regimen? As far as drug-drug interactions, what I worry about, and this was an interaction I caught during residency in a, a bone marrow transplant patient, um, is that potent inducers, so drugs like carbamazepine or phenytoin used for patients with seizures, potentially if they have brain meds causing seizures, um, is there is a concern, conceptually and theoretically, that that potent inducer will increase the rate of bioactivation from cyclophosphamide to that phosphoramide muster, potentially leading to more toxicity. Um, so ideally, you would want to remove that uh, induction interaction before giving a dose of cyclophosphamide. Induction uh, effects from drug interactions hang around for maybe a week to maybe even up to three weeks after you remove the drug. So that's something that may not be feasible in clinical practice depending on how fast chemotherapy needs to be started. But certainly something that warrants discussion uh, if you note that. Uh, I feel like every time I do one of these foundations of chemo, foundations of oncology pharmacy, I forget something that I want to say uh, about cyclophosphamide. So if I do that, I'll make sure that I, I tweet that out. Feel free. Uh, I encourage you to follow me on Twitter at PharmDeetnib. That's my personal account. Uh, and then follow the podcast at OncoFarmPod. You can also follow the podcast uh, on Instagram uh, uh, under the name OncoFarmPod. And uh, if you get if you get time and you're feeling generous, go to the iTunes store and give us a five star uh, rating and, and tell us what you like about the podcast. And uh, I hope to see you all a little further down the road. Mm-hmm.